Please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. In a minute, we'll read verses 1 through 4. You can find that on page 1016 of the Bibles provided. This morning, we're continuing our series through what a mature Christian is, and we've transitioned in the last couple weeks to focusing specifically on what elders are to do. So last week, we looked at the elders' teaching, and today we're going to look at an elder's shepherding. What does it mean for an elder to be a shepherd? And so to understand that, we're going to read this passage together in 1 Peter, as well as some other passages, and um, reflect on this idea of what does it mean when God calls the pastors of churches shepherds. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5, 1-4. through 4. Listen to God's word. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is God's word. To begin our understanding of what a shepherd is, I want us to first notice that Christ is called the chief shepherd. So elders are to shepherd knowing that the chief shepherd will appear. They'll be accountable to him. Peter actually uh, emphasizes this point twice in these brief verses. He first says that elders are to shepherd as God would have them. So the elders serve in submission to God, in submission to the chief shepherd. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But what I want us to consider first is what it means for Christ to be a shepherd. Hopefully, as you've listened to the passage and read along that we've picked for this morning's service, you've seen a thread of of shepherding throughout the scriptures, that God is Israel's shepherd, that he appoints David to be a shepherd and to establish this shepherding dynasty, and that Christ calls himself the good shepherd. Well, Peter also speaks of Christ as the shepherd just a couple of chapters before in 1 Peter 2. So if you want to just flip over a page in your Bibles, you can read that with me. 1 Peter 2 beginning in verse 22. He's talking here of Christ, and he says in verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So here Peter calls Jesus the shepherd and overseer, two of the same words he's going to use to describe human shepherds, the pastors of churches. But he he first here applies them to Christ, and he applies them to Christ in the context of of discussing his suffering, his saving suffering, the work that he did on the cross to save sinners so that sinners could find forgiveness and life, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might have our wounds, our spiritual wounds healed by him, 
This is the context in which Jesus is called the shepherd. And as we've already seen, he's the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So when we think of Christ, our shepherd, we, think of, we should think of him in his, his work of, of healing us from the infirmity of sin, his work of saving us, his work of justifying us by faith. So to say that Christ is shepherd and overseer is to say that he is the one and only savior and king. That word overseer has this connotation of ruling. So to begin, we just need to ask the question, is that how you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus as your savior and king? Do you see yourself as somebody who's a a sheep that strayed away from God, your good shepherd? Christ, the good shepherd, calls us. He calls us back from our straying to return to him. He calls us to recognize the ways that we've sinned and rebelled against God. He calls us to recognize, I'm lost. I'm a lost sheep. And yet, despite our lostness and our rebellion, Christ calls us. He would be our good shepherd to us. If we would turn from our sins and trust in his saving work, we will find that he died in our place. The good shepherd lays down his life for us. He would have us come to him and rest in the work he's accomplished for us. That on the cross he bore the sins of his people. He will bear our sins away and heal us of all of our infirmities if we trust in him. So the most important question of this sermon is, do you know the good shepherd? Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? You have questions about what this means and I encourage you to talk to your parents or one of the pastors. Any of the Christians here would be glad to talk to you about what it means to know the good shepherd and trust in his saving work. By starting here, we see that Christ's shepherding and overseeing work are unique to him. No merely human pastor can imitate Jesus' unique shepherding, right? None of, no human pastor can lay down their life to pay for your sins or, or rule you as the exalted king. So we need to make that very clear. Jesus is unique as shepherd and overseer, and yet it's pleased Jesus to establish human shepherds to lead his church. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at today. Jesus has established shepherds, and so What do they do and why has he called them that? This morning we're going to look at seven descriptions, I'm sorry, six descriptions of a shepherd this morning. Six descriptions of what shepherding is. And my hope is that by looking at this, we'll all be taught what to look for in shepherds. Even as Pastor Tim just prayed that we will even grow in our own shepherding to the extent that God has entrusted to us the responsibility of caring for others Each Christian can grow as one who cares for other Christians and that we will all grow in our following of the good shepherd. So here are the six descriptions of shepherding that we're going to look at this morning. First, shepherding is a sacred trust. Shepherding is a sacred trust. Second, shepherding is an office. Shepherding is an office. 
third, shepherding is teaching. Shepherding is teaching. Shepherding is personal. It's personal. Fifth, shepherding is vigilant. Shepherding is vigilant. And finally, shepherding is leading. So it's a sacred trust, an office, teaching, personal, vigilant, and leading. Let's look at this first one. The first way we're to understand an elder shepherding is to see it as a sacred trust. I want to point out two aspects of this trust, this thing that Christ has entrusted to his under-shepherds, as we sometimes call them. First, he's entrusted pastors with his flock, right? He's entrusted pastors with his flock. Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, right? In Acts 20, which we'll look at later, Paul tells the Ephesian elders to care for those that Christ has obtained with his own blood. So God entrusts the care of his people to elders. And second, Christ has entrusted pastors with the gospel message. They are ministers of the gospel. This makes up the sacred trust. I think these things you could say roughly correspond to how the elders of the, or the apostles of Acts 6 distinguish themselves from the deacons. The apostles say they are to to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer, right? The ministry of the gospel and to pray for those God has entrusted to them. So we see here that a pastor serves the church not with his own ideas or his visionary leadership, right? We recognize already no merely human pastor can save anyone, but they can point people to the Savior, And so pastors of churches do rule in a way, but they are not kings of their own empire. They are ambassadors of King Jesus. They represent him. They instruct people about how to obey Christ. So a pastor's job is to appoint men and women to the chief shepherd. We also see that the way that the chief shepherd serves informs the way pastors are to serve. Pastors are to pastor with gentleness. Catch a flavor of this in the the things that Peter says that elders are to not do and to do in chapter 5. He says there, to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Something of the flavor of Jesus' own life and ministry is to characterize the pastor's ministry. We see that to hold this trust, then, is a weighty calling. But it's also a high and worthy calling. Paul calls it, in 1 Timothy 3, a noble task. He said those who aspire to that office desire a noble task. And so we should look for men to serve as elders of our church who find their greatest joy in loving Christ and loving his people. They serve willingly with joy because they love the good shepherd. We're looking for humble men who are not out to serve their own ambitions, but they're ambitious to see people grow in their knowledge of the Lord. They're ambitious to see more worshipers for King Jesus, more sheep in the good shepherd's fold. One way you can help us as a church is by identifying the men you see that are doing this. 
So if, if you see a, a brother in Christ who's helped you growing in your knowledge of Jesus, let the elders know about him. We would love to hear that. Those may be the men that God is calling to be the future shepherds of our church. We want to call those men who have a sense of the, the sacred trust that God has given to us, of ministering the word and caring for his people. So first, eldering, shepherding, is a sacred trust. Secondly, shepherding is an office. Now, by comparison to sacred trust, this sounds pretty boring and, and mundane, right? <clears throat> but it's important. And I want us to, to notice this because it, it helps to see that shepherding is a role or a job that Christ has ordained. He's established this office for the church. In the scriptures, we see two offices in the church. We see the office of elder and the office of deacon, two distinct jobs that Christ has ordained. You see some evidence for this uh, idea of eldership as an office in just the fact that 1 Timothy 3 gives us first qualifications for the office of pastor and then qualifications for deacons. And then in Titus 1, again, we have more qualifications for what a pastor should be. Another piece of evidence for the idea that this office is something Christ has ordained that every church should have is in the way that Paul instructs Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 that he's to, to appoint elders in every place as a way of putting all things into order. So Christ intends that a well-ordered church, a rightly ordered church, will have men serving in the office of elder. Another reason to highlight this idea that shepherding is an office is, is just to clarify why we use all these different words to describe the office. So there's three different terms that you'll hear, actually even more, but some of them are kind of saying the same thing. Uh, we say pastor, elder, and overseer or bishop. So overseer and bishop go together, right? They're, bishop's just an old English word for overseer. Pastor and shepherd are basically the same thing. Right? They're, they're translating the same word. Uh, and elder um, is a word that probably comes from the, the Jewish uh, synagogue, but is a, a word that's just rec recognizing someone as a leader of a group. All these words refer to the same thing. And first, Peter 5 makes this clear. Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. All three words, right? We have elder, pastor or shepherd, and overseer, all there in the same uh, group of verses. We see both the terms elder and overseer used in Titus chapter 1, verse five, uh, verses 5 through 8. We also see the same cluster of words in uh, Acts chapter 20, where Paul tells the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So that word that's translated care is the word for shepherd. It looks, it's the same Greek word. They're to care for the flock of God. So he's talking to the elders in Ephesus. He's telling them that God's made them overseers, and he's telling them to shepherd. So these three terms all refer to the same thing. Uh, if we want to get technical, we might say that Christ established the office of elder, and that shepherd and overseer kind of describe what that elder is to do. They tell us what an elder does. <clears throat> But shepherding is an office with these three names. There's two other important things to say about the office of elder, and we're going to cut, touch these briefly. If you have more, more questions, that please, please talk to me or one of the other elders afterwards. But first, the scriptures teach that the office of elder 
is only for men. And this is what the church has confessed for most of its history. The key text here is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Pastor Greg Gilbert, who's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, explains that the phrase teach or exercise authority describes both the office and function of eldership because Paul often combines teaching and authority when he's talking about elders. So these two functions, teaching and exercising authority, ministry of the word and overseeing, are are kind of shorthand for describing the office of elder. Now, in this booklet, Gilbert goes on to clarify, this doesn't forbid women from, from speaking at all in church, right? It doesn't forbid what Stephanie just did for us in reading the scriptures. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. What he says is, what's at issue here is authoritative or conscience-binding teaching and leading. The doctrinal instruction of the church in the scriptures and the direction-setting governance of the church. That's what, when Paul is saying, teacher exercise authority, that's what he has in mind. This is a role that the scriptures say is to be held by men. So we see here that, that women have a vital role to play in our churches. They are included among the saints in Ephesians 4 who are, who are to be equipped to do the work of the ministry by the elders. But the scripture restricts the office of pastor to qualified men, men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 5 through 8. The other important thing to say about elders is that there should normally be more than one of them in a church. You'll sometimes hear this called the plurality of elders. So we would, we would say as a church, we believe in the plurality of elders. We see this by example throughout the book of Acts. Elders are spoken of in the plural. So in Acts chapter 20, we see that there were more than one elder in the church at Ephesus. We see the same thing when we look at Acts chapter 15 or chapter 21 in reference to the church at Jerusalem. There were elders there, more than one, in one local church. Now, sometimes we refer to the main preaching pastor as the pastor and the non-staff pastors of elders, but that's almost more of a custom than it is anything technical. We, we believe that all of us are pastors. You could, you could use that term to describe all of us. All of us are overseers. If you want to be funny, you could say we're all bishops, right? We all have that same function. We're all equals. We have equal authority. One of us just is set aside to spend more time in the word for the good of the church. The, the idea of this plurality, though, is for the good of the church as well. We're better together than we are separately. So a church should have a plurality of elders where God has provided qualified men. At the same time, Scripture doesn't prescribe a minimum number. So we don't see Paul telling this church, hey, you're not a church because you only have two or one. Um, But it's ordinarily the case. If the Lord provides qualified men, a church should have more than one man in the office of elder. So that's description number two. Shepherding is an office. This third description is going to be brief because it was the topic of last week's sermon. But third, shepherding is teaching. The main way that elders carry out their work is by teaching God's word to God's people. If we press the imagery of a shepherd, we would note that one of the main jobs that a literal shepherd has is to feed his sheep, right? To lead them to where the good grazing is, to make sure they have good food to eat. Spiritual shepherds feed God's flock with God's word. To put it even more specifically, spiritual shepherds seek to lead the sheep 
to feed on Christ. Christ is our true spiritual food and true drink. And the way we lead them there is by expounding the scriptures, the scriptures that point to Christ. That's how elders lead and serve. So look for shepherds that will feed you the word of God, not their own ideas. Look for faithful teachers. Note that when we talk about calling men to serve as elders, we're not seeking to create elders out of nothing. We're seeking to recognize those who are already serving in these ways. We should look for men to start doing the the functions of eldering, doing this kind of gospel teaching before they ever have the office. So we should call those men to serve us in the office who we see are already fruitfully helping others learn Christ and to follow him. And this gets to a larger point. A healthy church will see aspects of shepherding type work in every relationship in the church. We want to be a church where each member sees themselves as having a responsibility to help the other members grow in Christ. Each as you're able, right? Not all of us will have the same capacity or the same knowledge or the same comfort with people. But by God's grace, we have something to contribute. Sometimes that contribution is just showing up on a Sunday morning. And by our presence, we are an encouragement to keep following Christ. So wherever you are, wherever your little flock is, seek to be a faithful shepherd and teacher. We hope that the moms here are doing the best they can to shepherd their kids, to teach their kids the truth of Scripture. We hope that older women are serving younger women with the gospel. We hope that men are shepherding each other. If the church has elders who are teaching well, we should see this gospel teaching reverberate through every relationship in the church. So that's description number three. Shepherding is teaching. Description number four is that shepherding is personal. Think of the way that our Lord shepherds us. Think of what Stephanie read for us. The shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them by name and they know him. Our Lord knows the number of hairs on our heads. He knows us. This same kind of personal care should translate into the way human shepherds work, obviously with, with much less ability to know the sheep. Consider what Paul, how Paul instructs the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28. Paul says, Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Elders understand that Christ's flock is precious to him. He purchased them with his own blood. And elders are to care for them. Peter's instructions to elders also highlight this kind of personal care. So he exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then in verse 3 he says, Elders are not to be domineering over those in your charge. The New Testament scholar Karen Jobs notes that this phrase, those in your charge, translates a peculiar Greek word. And she says that this word is is often translated in the Old Testament to refer to what God had ordained, apportioned, and distributed. The use of this peculiar word is possibly a metaphor suggesting the idea of divine appointment of these particular people to the care of these particular elders. The elders need to recognize the Christian believers among them as sheep assigned by God to their care 
And similarly, the believers need to acknowledge the elders as their allotted leaders. So the elders of Christ our Savior Baptist Church are not commanded or entrusted with the care of every Christian in the universe, right? We're not even entrusted with every Christian between I-10 and I-45 in Harris County, right? That's not, that's not who God has entrusted to us. So the Lord has entrusted this flock, you know, the, the 42 members of Christ our Savior Baptist Church. We, we will give an account to the Lord for you, right? And you, you've been given us, right? You're, you don't have to submit to the pastor at First Baptist Houston the way you're called to submit to us, your, your leaders, the ones he's given to you. So the Lord has given us to each other in a way. So elders are to know their church members and to know what they need. They're to know them so that they can minister the gospel well to them. They can teach them the scriptures in ways that are appropriate to each person. As the saying goes, elders or shepherds should smell like sheep. Right? It's not a commentary on that any of you stink. But pastors should, should know and be known by the people that they serve. In a small church like ours, this can happen somewhat naturally. Right? It would be hard to be a member and to go through the membership process and to come every week without being known on some level. And yet there's still a lot of room for us as elders to grow in knowing you. You may remember a couple of years ago, we tried to do a more deliberate sort of structured kind of pastoral care where we made appointments and visited with many of you. We didn't get to all of you, so some of those appointments happened and some of them never did. But we may do something like that again. And I, I want to just put it on your radar that if we do, it's, it's not so we can just get invited over to your house and can nose around your life. It's not because we want to be intimidating. It's because we want to know you and care for you the way God has instructed us to. Because you are Christ's precious blood-bought people. We want to see how we can better serve and encourage you. If there are ways that you could think of right now, I, I could really use some care here, please reach out to us. We would love to, to do what we can to encourage and help you. So when you see a man in the church who's investing in relationships in the church, who's seeking to know and care for the members here, you may be looking at a, a future elder. I think this points out an area where churches can often call the wrong men as elders. In some churches, it's the successful businessmen of the church who are held up as leaders. They seem to be respectable, maybe because they have good management experience, they've had good success in the business world, and it's thought those traits will translate to good management and maybe success in the church world. In other churches, it's mainly the, the theologians that get nominated. You know, they seem interested in the right things. You know, they're, they're aware of the best new Christian books to read and also the worst Christian books that you shouldn't read. We think maybe that's what makes for a good elder. And there's some truth in both of those things, right? Elders need to be good with their, in, lead, in having wise leadership. Elders need to be theologically discerning. But we, we might call a man who succeeds in one of these ways but who doesn't really care for God's people. We might overlook the way he cares for others. This is one of the reasons why Paul tells us to, to look at the way a man manages his household, the way he leads and serves his family. But look, what kind of a husband is this man? Are his children flourishing in his household? Are they respectful? 
Does he prioritize his, his wife's growth in Christ? Does his wife and kids, they speak well of his leadership? We want to look at how a, a man's family is thriving. Because his, man, his family is kind of his little flock. This doesn't only mean we have to call married men with families, but it's a, it's a useful tool the Lord has ordained for us to use in, in evaluating men to serve as pastors. So shepherding is personal. It involves the personal care of God's sheep. That's descriptor number four. Number five is that shepherding is vigilant. This may be the thing that actual shepherds show us the most clearly. They're, they're vigilant about the health and well-being of the sheep. And they're on the lookout for anything that can harm the sheep. That could just be the wrong kind of clover. It could be a coyote. It could be a cliff next to the path. All kinds of things can be a danger to the sheep. When we think about the vigilance of pastors, we usually think about vigilance for truth. They're to be on the lookout for false teaching. And this is true. But Paul would, I think, add something else to that. In Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus, we see that he regularly instructs pastors to be vigilant for truth and for godliness. For example, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul's severely criticizing anyone who teaches a different doctrine. Let me turn over there and read that for us. <clears throat> this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read a couple verses starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the, deprived of the truth. Just notice here that Paul can't speak of truth or doctrine in purely intellectual terms. It always morphs into the moral concerns as well. So Paul is concerned for, for, for people who have unsound doctrine and unsound lives. So a pastor would be vigilant for both. But with, with regard to teaching, we should see that vigilance begins with positive instruction. Right? So we're, we're back to teaching again. Vigilant pastors will seek to establish what is true for their congregation, to teach them in the way of the truth, right? The old adage that you, you can identify counterfeits best by knowing what the real thing looks like. We want our members, our, our flock, to be grounded in what the truth is and what true godliness is. And once, once that is clear, then pastors can, can warn and correct those who are teaching or believing error. A faithful pastor will seek to refute the errors that his church is most prone to believe. Again, this is the kind of vigilance we're most often thinking about, that vigilance for truth, for fighting false teaching. And this is really important because false teaching tells lies about God and the gospel. Those who listen to it or who are drawn astray by it are in grave danger believing something that might lead them away from Christ completely. And yet, when we say that a shepherd is vigilant, we should recall the previous description of shepherding as personal. I don't know if any of you recall seeing this comic strip, 
but it shows a guy, a stick figure, sitting at his computer and he's typing away. And a voice comes from the other room and says, are you coming to bed? And he says, it's important what I'm doing. And the voice says, what's so important? And he says, someone is wrong on the internet. Well, that's a kind of vigilance, right? But it's a bad model for pastors. The vigilant pastor is one who has to know the particular dangers that his own sheep will face, the things that are most, they're most susceptible to, which means he'll have to ignore a lot of things to do the job well. So a good pastor shouldn't try to become a, a political pundit or a cultural critic or even a, a theological pundit, even as he must know something of what's going on in, in theology and culture. Now, a pastor's vigilance is informed by a deep knowledge of the people he has been called to pastor. He can't put out the fires in someone else's church unless those fires are in danger of burning his own house down. Again, we, we think of this in terms of false teaching, but we should remember this is also about godliness. Another way to put it, there's more than one way to be an unsound or false teacher. There can be those false teachers who are unsound in doctrine, but there can also be false teachers who are false because of their ungodly and immoral lives. And we see that Paul and Peter have a lot to say about this. So in that same passage I read from 1 Timothy 6, Paul goes on to, to raise the alarm about someone who might be teaching as a way to get gain for themselves, as a way to make money off of the flock. And Peter has this same concern as well, that, that pastors should not serve from, from, for, for the sake of ungodly gain. And it even seems like Jesus has this in mind a little bit when he talks about the hireling, right, who won't really serve the sheep. So this is a concern that, that a greedy pastor would be a snare to the church, right? That a greedy pastor might lead his congregation to be greedy, to think that the things of this world are of more value than the things of God. But that's just one example of the kind of ungodliness that can harm a church. Peter also warns us about elders who would domineer over a church. He recognizes that authority can be abused, Overbearing or abusive authority has no place among an el elders or a church. So a godly pastor will be very careful about how they use authority. They will understand themselves to be under authority, even as they are in authority. Just think with me about a few ways a pastor is under authority. I mean, first of all, a pastor is a church member, right? So. A pastor is under the congregation's authority. All of the elders here at Christ our Savior Baptist Church are your brothers in Christ. We're under your authority. If you, if you see us in sin, we, we need you to warn us and correct us. Right? It, it, we, we, we answer to you the same way every member of this church is called to answer to one another. Secondly, if we have a plurality of elders as we do, then the elders are under the authority of the other elders and are called to, to submit to them, to be open about our struggles and, and ask for prayer and seek help and encouragement and advice. And ultimately, we've seen the elders are under Christ's authority. Right? The church belongs to him. It's his body. And so we rule under Christ in submission to him. So if a pastor rules as if he is his own authority, he's disqualified himself from being a pastor. One way to examine how a pastor uses his authority is to, 
to look at how he responds to criticism or feedback. Does he seek it out? Does he receive it humbly? Is he willing to listen? And how does he do this with his family? And what would his wife and kids say about, about what dad does when he's you know, proven to be wrong about something? Does he just dig in or does he admit where he's wrong? Those who misuse and abuse authority will almost never admit to being wrong. They'll be unable to be corrected. Vigilant pastors are not only vigilant about teachers of false doctrine, but they are vigilant about teachers with false lives. The pastor's vigilance is not only focused on threats coming from those we might call church leaders or well-known teachers outside the church, but we're vigilant about the, the faith and conduct of church members. Right? This vigilance should make a pastor a man of prayer. But the church needs God's help to protect it from false teaching and from sin. So a vigilant pastor should pray diligently. A vigilant pastor is also willing to warn and correct church members when he sees them straying into ungodliness or repeating something false that they've heard. He's to warn them with gentleness, although in one case Paul says that the warning should, should be sharp in Titus 1, uh, chapter, uh, for 1 verses 10 through 13. But even the goal of that sharp rebuke, Paul says, is that they may be sound in faith. Paul envisions correction that leads to soundness among the flock. The last thing I'll say about a pastor's vigilance is that it includes vigilance over himself. Listen to Paul's instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing, so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. An elder will be vigilant about his own fight against sin, his own example, and his own teaching. He'll pray for his own soul, even as he prays for the souls of Christ's people. He'll be quick to repent of his sins. He'll joyfully rely on the grace of God that God provides in the gospel. The shepherd's vigilance is not a personality trait or a, a hobby. We're not looking for the men in the room who, who can identify all the threats, you know. And having a finely tuned heresy detector, that alone doesn't qualify a man to be a pastor. Rather, a pastor's vigilance should be born out of his love for Christ and Christ's people. The shepherd's vigilance is a humble, prayerful, and wise vigilance. The final description we're going to look at this morning is that a shepherd is a leader. Shepherding is leading. We might even say ruling in the right way. I leave this one last on purpose, and that is because too many put it first. Most of you hopefully are blissfully unaware of this, but when, when things are marketed to pastors, much of the, much of the information and training is, is directed towards leadership techniques. It seems that pastors are always trying to take the latest ideas from business leadership and management and kind of baptize them and hopefully produce really fast-growing churches. That kind of seems to be the underlying implicit aim in all these things. Sometimes not implicit. Sometimes it's just explicit. Now, there's no problem with pastors learning from these things, but it's wrong to equate the pastor's work with the CEO's work or the entrepreneur's work or the, the army general's work. 
when we talk about a pastor as leader, we're, we're getting at this word overseer, right? One of the functions of the pastor is to oversee the church. And that has lots of implications, some of which we've already discussed. He's overseeing the lives of the church members. Are they following Christ? Are they believing some lie? Do they need correction or encouragement or the comfort of the gospel? But this oversight includes a lot of these things uh, that pastors have to decide where there's, there's no clear scriptural teaching, but they're required for the church to function. Just as an example, one of the ways you know, your pastors have been leading you in the last few weeks is as in the leading of, uh, through the process of taking in new members. So some of us met with the new members. We went through membership classes with the new members. We, we interviewed them about their, their understanding of the gospel and their history with the church. Right? That, that's all stuff that the Bible doesn't say we have to do. But we do need some process for taking in new members. And so the pastors seek to lead in that way. If we think about kind of the most important kinds of leadership the pastors provide, it's in that area. It's in taking in members. It's in maybe disciplining members who are unrepentant or, or removing them. It's in nominating new pastors and, and deacons. It, it's these kinds of things where we're trying to serve the church in the church doing what Christ has called the church to do and make disciples and proclaim the gospel. We're seeking to help the church be the church in an orderly way, in a Christ-honoring way. So there's that category of, of leadership, but there's also uh, maybe we might say kind of lesser but still important categories. So how many meetings should the church have? We might say, well, it's pretty clear in Scripture it should be weekly, right? But should we meet twice on Sundays? Uh, should we have small groups? Should those small groups be required by, of every member? Should they be um, you know, oriented toward this or that? These are all decisions that pastors have to lead in. So recently, we've begun leading by, in, by encouraging this prayer meeting once a month, right? This is something that pastors think is important. We would, we would lead you to come and to, to enjoy that and to, to gather with us and be unified in praying for the needs of our body. Of course, this, this kind of leading happened in part because John and Megan opened up their home and said to me one day, hey, we would, we would love to host a meeting like that at our house if, if that would be something y'all are interested in. And this kind of exposes that there's lots of different kinds of leadership in the church, right? There's that maybe more pastoral leadership, and there's really practical leadership about, hey, here's our house. Use it for the sake of the church. If we follow that thread a little further, we get basically to deacons, right? Deacons are often leading in meeting practical needs. Just as a preview of where we're going to go next week, Acts 6 shows us a model of, of a kind of division of labor in the church. Pastors devote themselves to the prayer and ministry of the word, while deacons help the pastors to solve practical problems in order to serve the church's unity. All this is to say that pastoral leadership requires wisdom. I think if you're going to disagree with your pastors, it's probably going to be over some practical decision they made, that they did this and not that, right? And, and that's kind of fine, right? We can have disagreements there and hopefully still be unified in, in most cases. So we're going to have to decide, are we going to do this or that or in worship? Are we going to meet here or there at this time or that time? These are all things that are important, but Scripture now doesn't always provide clear answers to. And so we need, to, we need pastors who are wise, that wisdom should take the shape of service to Christ's people and the mission of Christ's church. 
So wisdom to know what will serve Christ's people. Wisdom to know what will help and not distract the church from the mission that Christ has given us. How to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. How to be unified around the gospel. To even foresee what may be the unintended consequences of this or that decision. And to fight against those if they're, if they're harmful. A good example of complicated leadership decisions that churches have to make are, are decisions around live streaming services during the pandemic, right? So it may seem like kind of a small thing. Uh, again, this is something we were only able to do because Brother Randy had the equipment and was willing and basically just started doing it. And we, we had to say, okay, this is a thing we can do. Uh, should we do it? And, and we decided we should for a period of time. Because it was a way to allow members who either were sick or were worried about getting sick to still somewhat stay connected and participate and worship during that, during that time. But we ultimately decided that though we would provide it, it would be a limited time offering. It would have an expiration date. And that's because we, we realized that watching a church service online isn't going to church. It's not assembling with God's people. And we don't want to provide any kind of ongoing temptation for someone to be confused about that or an incentive for them just to stay home and feel like they've done church online. So we, we, we at an appropriate time, we thought, we, we took away the live stream to emphasize that we can gather together and that's how God intends for us to be a church. There's lots of factors involved in that decision, right? And some churches chose never to stream their services. Other churches never stopped streaming, right? Some of their pastoral leadership has been really good. Some of it we might say that was really bad, right? <clears throat> but there's, there's no infallibility here in these kinds of decisions. They require leadership. And this is why, again, it's good to have a plurality of pastors. I'm really thankful I didn't have to make all of those decisions alone or me and John alone as the only staff pastors. We had a group of us that, that could try to understand the needs of our body and make a decision. This is a good reason to have plurality among our elders, so in looking for men to serve as pastors, we should look for wise leaders. By wise leaders, we don't mean leaders who, who kind of have that dynamic leadership the worldly people would, would esteem, right? I mean, we might have a dynamic man, but that's not the point. The wisdom we're looking for looks a lot more like the wisdom of a good father than the wisdom of an entrepreneur. It's prayerful leadership. Leadership is the, is, that is aware of their own limitations and trust that God is the one who gives wisdom to those who ask. It's leadership in service to the church to make and display the glory, to make disciples and display the glory of God. In that sense, it's a constrained kind of leadership. Right? The shepherd leader isn't out to use pastoral ministry as a platform for his own ambition. The shepherd leader isn't trying to use sheep, but is trying to encourage them for the sake and honor of Christ's name. The shepherd leader is seeking them to follow Christ. And by God's grace, he's leading the congregation to follow Christ. So that's what it means to say that shepherding is leading. This brings us back to where we began with the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the best human shepherds are those who most clearly and compellingly lead people to Christ. Christ shows us what a good shepherd is when he lays down his life for our sake. 
And he sets the pattern that all good shepherds follow. He gives us that sacred deposit, the gospel that we proclaim, that leads people to Christ. Good shepherds are not hirelings out for their own gain. Good pastors love and serve those whom Christ died to save. I, for one, am extremely thankful for the elders that God has given our church. Geo, John, and Tim, and Dad are all faithful shepherds. They love Christ. They love his word. They love you all. They've shepherded me well. They're my pastors. They've shown the love of Christ to me. They've ministered the gospel to me. They care for my family. And I think if we were to have you all stand up here, you could give similar testimonies to how the elders of this church have loved and served you. So I hope this sermon makes you thankful, thankful for godly elders, and I hope it makes you eager to see more godly shepherds raised up in our church. I hope also that this message has shown you how kind Christ, the good shepherd, has been to you. He's not only laid down his life to save you, but he's provided shepherds who point you to Christ. What a generous shepherd and overseer we have. Let's pray. Father, it's rare to preach a sermon that is in some ways all about the preacher or the pastors. But I'm thankful that you have not left us without instruction for this in your word. And I do pray for us as pastors that we will hear what you have to say about our shepherding, that you will lead us to growth and repentance where needed, that it would be evident to the congregation here of how much we love them, how much we believe the gospel, how much we would want to see them grow in it. I pray also that you'll help our congregation grow as they are teach teachers of the word to one another. I pray they would see that the joy that comes with knowing the gospel and sharing the gospel. I pray that in all this you would bring the comfort that comes from knowing Christ as our good shepherd. Father, it's joyful to come before your throne and to know we are the sheep of your pasture. We are here because Jesus laid down his life for us. Please give us joy in this together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.